from the Heidelberg Catechism. We read together Lord's Day 32. You find that on page 548 of your book of praise. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image, so that our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits, and he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and of our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbors for Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? By no means. Scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like shall inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, within Christendom there are many who see the Ten Commandments as being old-fashioned. They have the attitude that the law was something for God's people living in the Old Covenant, but that it no longer applies to us today. They say, we've got the gospel now. There's no longer any need to live according to a set of laws. We've been redeemed by God's grace in Christ. The Holy Spirit has regenerated us. We're no longer accountable to the commandments God has given in the Old Covenant. Now, it's true that we don't have to keep the law in order to be saved. The gospel correctly teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot merit anything before God by our good works. Living according to God's commands cannot and will not earn you entrance into heaven. But the fact that our good works don't merit God's favor does not take away from the need for us to do good works. In Ecclesiastes 12, the preacher summarizes what God expects from us in these words. He said, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. <coughs> this is not only an Old Testament teaching. In Matthew 5, Jesus taught that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus said not even the smallest letter will pass from the law until he returns. He said, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It is important for Christians to do good works. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John echoes his teaching in 1 John 5, verse 3, saying, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We do good works not to earn salvation, but in thankfulness for the salvation that God has worked for us. And that's not the only reason for doing good works. They also benefit us in making us sure that we have a living faith in Jesus Christ. 
God also uses them as a testimony to those around us so that they also may share in His grace. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. <coughs> in response to God's grace in Christ, we are to do good works. We're to do good works out of thankfulness to God for the assurance of our faith and to win our neighbor for Christ. In the coming months, we'll be busy dealing with the final section of the Catechism. We will learn that we are to show our thankfulness to God through the things we do and the things we say. The Catechism will draw our attention to our deeds and words through a discussion, first of the Ten Commandments and then later of the Lord's Prayer. It teaches us that our thankfulness is to be expressed in our walk and talk. Yet before the Catechism begins to explain how we are to be thankful, it deals with the question about why we are to be thankful. Before it explains what God requires of us in the Ten Commandments, it emphasizes why we are to keep these commandments. The question of why we are to do good works is a very important one. For the answer to this question will have an impact on how we respond to God and how we live before Him. One of the struggles that can face us as church is that of nominalism. A nominalist is someone who claims to be a Christian in name, but who in his behavior is unchristian. That is, a nominalist does all the expected things. He goes to church, he sends his kids to a Christian school, but he adds to his Christian conduct a pattern of behavior that is distinctly ungodly. In name he likes to be seen as a Christian, but in word and deed he does not show forth the fruit of the Spirit. The problem with anomalist is that he does his good works for the wrong reason. He does not do them out of thankfulness to God. Instead, he does them to be seen by men. He has not properly understood why it is that we are to do good works. Besides nominalism, we also face the problem of legalism. A legalist is someone who lives his life strictly according to the law of God. His problem is not that he's two-faced like the nominalist. He's very serious about the observance of the law. And yet his motivation for keeping the law is wrong. He keeps the law because he's convinced he must do so in order to be saved. The problem with the legalist is that once again he does his good works for the wrong reason. He's not doing them out of thankfulness to God. Instead he does them because he's convinced they're required for salvation. Also he has not properly understood why it is we are to do good works. Where is it that the legalist goes wrong? Well, all his attention is on the do's and don'ts of God's law. He'll live his life according to a set list of regulations, and he'll strongly advocate that everyone else should too. Often he's very judgmental towards those who do not live up to his standards. His service towards God is based on compulsion rather than on love. You see how someone who does good works out of a sense of duty instead of out of thankfulness also does them for the wrong reasons? And so, beloved, it's very important to understand why we 
do good works. Just doing them is not enough. Our motivation for doing them needs to be right. So why must we do good works? Our catechism teaches us that we do not keep God's law in order to be saved. No, we keep it because we have been saved. It can be seen in question 86, which reads, Since we have been delivered. And also answer 86, which says, Because Christ having delivered us, we do our good works out of thankfulness to God for the deliverance that he has worked for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Beloved, if we truly know our sins and misery, then we become very humble before God. We know how much our sins offend Him and how greatly He is grieved by our transgressions. We're aware of the fact that we deserve to have God's wrath rest on us. When we see how Christ has delivered us, we cannot help but be thankful freely he came into this world to suffer for us. Of his own accord, he offered up his life for us. If we understand what Christ has done for us, we cannot help but rejoice. He took on himself the curse which lay on us. He has freed us from the dominion of the evil one. He has promised to preserve us as his own because he loves us. Christ's redemptive work is what makes us thankful to God. We praise Him for the new life that He has given us. We worship Him because of the mercy and grace He has shown to us. Our hearts respond to His love with thankfulness and joy. Because of all God has done for us, we cannot help but want to express our thankfulness to Him. And we do so not just in words, but also in deeds. We heed God's commandments, the statutes and ordinances that He has given, because that's how we can express our gratitude to Him. Paul speaks about this in, the, in our reading from Romans 12. The letter to the Romans is often seen as the basis for the structure of our catechism. In the first chapters of Romans, Paul has made clear our sins, and of how all mankind deserves to come under God's condemnation. From midway through chapter 3 to chapter 11, Paul has made clear God's grace in Christ, our wondrous deliverance. In chapter 12, Paul begins a new section in his letter, in which he calls God's people to live thankful lives to God's glory. Paul begins Romans 12 with an urgent call. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In the Old Covenant, God's people offered guilt offerings and sin offerings to make atonement for their sins. Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law by coming and offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He offered up his body and blood on the cross for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. What's our response? Well, says Paul, you are now to offer up your bodies as living sacrifices to God. What's a living sacrifice? 
In contrast with the Old Covenant, God is not expecting us to physically give up our lives as a human sacrifice on some altar. But He does call us to something almost as radical as that. He calls us to devote our lives to God. Our lives need to be focused on showing forth thankfulness for the great redemption Christ has worked for us. The whole of our life is to be lived sacrificially. What does that mean? Well, by nature, we're inclined to be selfish and self-seeking. To do the things I want to do. The things that benefit me. But if we truly reflect on what Christ has done for us, then the orientation of our heart changes. Christ saved me from death and hell. I'm so thankful. I now want to live for Him. To do what He wants me to do. To live my life according to His commandments. To devote myself to living a God-pleasing life. That's what it means to present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. This is the worship God desires from all those whom He has redeemed and renewed as His children. Practically speaking, how do we do that? How do we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God? Paul elaborates on that in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. It's easy for us to be influenced by the sinful pleasures of this world, for us to give in to the temptation Satan lays before us. But God calls us not to be conformed, to be shaped like the world around us. Instead, He calls us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. When Paul writes about being transformed, he uses a Greek word, metamorphosis. It's the same word that early bio biologists used to describe how caterpillars change into butterflies. Just as an ugly caterpillar is changed into a beautiful butterfly, so we are transformed by the Spirit of God from vile sinners to redeemed and renewed children of our Father in heaven. It's the Holy Spirit who works this wondrous change in us. The Bible often refers to it as a new birth because the effect on us is so profound. You see, beloved, if you truly understand that Christ has saved you from death and hell, and you understand that he had to suffer death and hell to accomplish that, how can you not be thankful? And if you're truly thankful, wouldn't you want to show that? It's the point Paul's making in Romans 12, which our catechism focuses on. Our wondrous redemption is the cause for great thankfulness. We show that thankfulness by offering our lives as a living sacrifice to God. We love God by keeping His commandments. We give glory to God by living thankful lives before Him. That brings us to our second point, 
and it will deal with how we are to do good works for the assurance of our faith. In 2 Peter 1, the Apostle speaks about the blessings God has granted us. He writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that relate to life and godliness. Peter goes on to speak about our transformation. He uses slightly different words than Paul did in Romans 12. Peter says that it's through God's great promises that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption of the world because of sinful desire. Peter's point is that through faith in Christ, we're enabled to take on some of the characteristics of God, which we lost in the fallen sin. Through the powerful working of God's Spirit, we may again begin to image Him. The Spirit helps us to fight against the sinful desires of the flesh. He gives us grace and strength to say and do what's pleasing in God's sight. Once Peter has made it clear that our transformation is not our own work, but the work of the Spirit in us, Peter goes on to call us to live God-pleasing lives. He writes, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Peter describes various qualities or characteristics that should be evident in each of our lives as Christians. Yet the main point that Peter wants to make is that is not just to show what a fruitful Christian life looks like. In 2 Peter 1 verses 10 and 11, he explains that living a faithful Christian life gives you the assurance that you are indeed a faithful Christian. He writes, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. You will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, one of the greatest things that can undermine our faith is sin. When you fall into a particular sin, you know how it gets in the way of your relationship with God. God hates sin. And when we sin, we'll feel His displeasure personally. When you struggle with a particular sin in your life, you may lose a sense of God's favor. How could God love someone like me when I repeatedly sin against Him? John Newton captured a sense of this in his song, Amazing Grace. He talks about himself being a wretch. He takes that language from what Paul wrote in Romans 7, verse 24, when he confesses, wretched man that I am. Newton was a slave trader. He was involved in taking captured slaves from Africa to England, subjecting them to a life of horror. It's not till later in his life that he realized how evil it was to treat people so unjustly and cruelly. It's something that weighed on his conscience. He knew he deserved God's punishment for his sins. 
That's why he called himself a wretch, a despicable, a contemptible person. It's only when he discovered the gospel that he learned of God's amazing grace, of his power to save us from sin and death. The point I'm trying to make, beloved, is that falling into sin or living in your sins can threaten your position before God. It can wound your conscience. It can cause you to lose a sense of God's favor. It can make you doubt your very salvation. It can make you ask the question, how can I be sure that I am a child of God? If I died today, could I be sure God would receive me into heaven? Or would he condemn me to hell? Yet there is a way to be assured that your salvation is certain. Peter tells us to make our calling and election sure by living a godly life. It's by living a life of faith that you confirm whether or not you have faith. Jesus taught us that a tree is known by its fruits. A good tree will produce good fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Be fruitful in your service of God and you will receive assurance that your faith is real and living. If you bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you may be sure the Spirit is at work in you. So we see that doing good works benefits us in that it provides us with an assurance our faith is real. This brings us to our final point, and it will see how we are to do good works to win our neighbor for Christ. Our catechism gives us a third motivation for doing good works. It is that by our godly way of life, we may win our neighbor for Christ. The Bible contains various texts that show us that our witness to the world is greatly affected by how we live our lives. In Matthew 5, the Lord Jesus told us, You are the salt of the world. In ancient times, they did not have refrigeration. Salt was used as a preservative. The only way to prevent meat or fish from perishing was to cake it in salt. Mariners would often take barrels of salted meat with them so they'd have food to eat while they traveled at sea. As Christians, we need to have a salting effect on those around us. God wants to use us to prevent people around us from perishing. How does he do that? Most often, unbelievers are not attracted, first of all, to the gospel itself. They are attracted to people who live according to the gospel. If you have been transformed by the power of God, you will live a very different life than someone who is not a Christian. Instead of being selfish and self-focused, more and more you'll learn to love God and your neighbor as yourself. Your character will be transformed. Think about the virtues Peter mentioned. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Or think of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God will use our character to prod others around us. If we have a winsome character, they will enjoy time with us. They will want to be like us. And that gives us the opportunity to share our faith. In Matthew 5, Jesus goes on and says that we are the light of the world. He commands, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Peter also speaks about this in his first letter. He teaches us to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Beloved, we are to live as renewed Christians. People around us should be able to see the fruits of our faith. Seeing our joy in the service of God should make them desire the same. Seeing the confidence with which we face the future should make them want to have what we have. If our conduct is consistently honorable, if we show forth the love of God for those around us, the Lord can use us to bring others to Him. If our lives reflect goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, it will cause others around us to seek the blessings we have received. The testimony of the Christian church can be a very strong witness to the world around us. Think back in church history to the faith displayed by many of the saints in times of persecution. Their willingness to be reviled by their enemies, to suffer punishment for the sake of Christ, is what prompted many to seek out the truth of the gospel. It's happening today, with some of the pastors who have been jailed for holding services against the public health orders. People are flocking to their churches because they want to understand why someone would be willing to risk imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. Most people don't join a Christian church of their own accord. They come to Christ and to His church through the witness of other Christians. God often uses our faith and the fruits of faith to draw others to His service. Beloved, does the community in which we live see us in such a positive manner? Do your friends and neighbors know that you are a Christian? Do they experience that you live your life in service of Christ? Do they see the fruits of faith in you? Do you show consideration to others around you and deal with them in love? Are you someone that they can count on for help and support in times of need? Both in our walk and in our talk, we need to show that we are Christ's disciples. For God often uses our witness to draw others to Him. And so, beloved, we see how we have a great motivation to do good works. We do them to show forth our thankfulness to God to assure us of our own faith and to win our neighbor for Christ. Yet, beloved, ultimately it's not we who do the good works. Christ works them in us 
by His Holy Spirit. He is the one who produces the fruits of faith in our lives. What comfort and assurance that gives us. You don't have to leave church this afternoon with a burden on your shoulders that you have to do it. Just walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Instead, you'll glorify God in all your words and works. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by singing together from hymn 28, stanzas 6 and 7. Hymn 28, 6 and 7. <laughs> 